Well, either you're closing your eyes to a situation you do not wish to acknowledge, or you are not aware of the caliber of disaster indicated by the presence of a pool table in your community. Well, you got trouble, my friend. Right here, I say trouble right here in River City. Why, sure, I'm a billiard player. Certainly mighty proud to say I'm always mighty proud to say it. I consider that the hours I spend with a cue in my hand are golden. Help me cultivate horse sense and a cool head and a keen eye. Did you ever take and try to give an ironclad leave to yourself from a three-rail billiard shot? But just as I said, Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 55, where we go back to the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or catch us through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and by passing a note in study hall. Hey. You know, they to see if you say, do you like me, Y-N? Yes, you circle know? one, please. Circle one, please. If N, I don't, I don't like you either. You know, that's how you always yes. uh, save face in that. What are we <laughs> reading today, Chris? We've got a brand new one for him. Yeah, well, how do, how do we follow up a five-part epic on Crisis on Infinite Earths? Yeah. Well, we're going to follow that up with a five-issue miniseries from Marvel Comics' epic imprint from uh, 2003. Very good. Ran from uh, September 2003 to January 2004, and that is Trouble. Written by Mark Miller, pencils by Terry Dodson, inks by Rachel Dodson, letters by Chris Iliopoulos. Colors by Brian Reba and John Hollingsworth. Edited and presided over by Warren Simons, Axel Alonso, Joe Quesada, and Bill Jemis. And we're not done with our cover credits yet, so uh, we hope you have your cringe hats on, because uh, we've got photo covers here by uh, Felipe Villalobos of uh, underage girls in bikinis, sucking on lollipops, wearing sunglasses. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. it's the kind of if 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 you're like me and you do a lot of your reading on your uh, nightstand, these are the ones you <laughs> these are the ones you don't want your wife to find on. You that. can't and when you bag them, you you bag them backwards, right? The, you uh, bag them backwards. Cover so you're, <laughs> yeah, you're you're looking at a Crash Bandicoot ad instead of, <laughs> instead of a jailbait. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's go with these photo covers here. Makeup by Guillermo Fernandez. Hair by Christophe Martin. Uh, and the bikini tops were provided for by Dippers California, Craftwork, and Weatherproof. Each issue was two dollar ninety nine cent. Wow. So uh, yeah, we we'll, we might talk a little bit more about those covers later on and why they look the way they do. But mm-hmm. let's just sink our teeth right into the uh, episode. Get into the author, uh, creator bios, starting with Mark Miller, born December twenty fourth, nineteen sixty nine, in Coatbridge, Lancashire. Lancashire, Scotland. Parents are also from Coatbridge, and Mark has four older brothers and one older sister. The oldest in age is, uh, the closest in age, sorry, is 14 years older. So Mm. that, you know, implies that, you know, Mark was not the planned baby, or maybe what we call these a uh, late stage baby or something like that. He was Uh, a surprise. Yeah, he might have been a a blessing, (laughs) a a blessing, a surprise, as they say. He's Uh, a a scientific marvel. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, He he attended uh, St. Bartholomew's Primary School in Coatbridge. His brother Bobby introduced Mark to comics at age four. Now, here are the the two comics that he uh, first ever saw, uh, according to Mark. Uh, His first one was The Amazing Spider-Man, number 121, June 1973, U.S. cover, by Jerry Conway and Gil Kane. That's the one where Gwen Stacy dies and Green Goblin gets skewered to death and Peter Parker finds out his best friend's a drug addict. 
that's the one that's the four-year-old comic you see that in a lot of preschools i think yeah uh, he also says he purchased a superman comic that day in a 1998 interview with Barb Lean Cooper, Mark said that the first Superman comic he held was Superman number 297, March 1976 U.S. cover by Carrie Bates, Elliot S. Magan, and Kurt Swan. That would have come out three years after he claimed to have received it, not to mention in the U.K., although they would have might have had a close publication date. Anyway, <laughs> the details are fuzzy. It's obviously a long time ago. Yeah, we'll just say these are two of his early comics, but you know, this is some strange, uh, very convenient comics as your first ones, I would say. <laughs> anyway, uh, Mark's brothers got him into black and white comics reprints after this, further cementing his fandom. And uh, we'll, we want to talk a little bit about these black and white comics. Yeah, because uh, selected material from Marvel's Silver Age would be uh, reprinted in Great Britain in the standard black and white UK comic book format not long after they were first published in the US by three different publishers. We've got Thorpe and Porter. We've also got L. Miller and Son, and then Alan Class. Uh, also, for a very brief time during 1967 and 68, there was a company named Power. Yeah. Now, these stories would be presented out of order and without regard for storylines, continuity, context, any of that good stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, eventually Marvel stepped in and had their own UK branch. We've got Marvel UK. They began operations with Mighty World of Marvel number one. That went on sale on September 30th, 1972. Uh, that would be edited in the United States by Tony Isabella. And the first issue had the origin stories for the Hulk, Fantastic Four, and Spider-Man. So this so would have actually, been the comic that, you know, the era that Mark's talking about is what, yes. is what we're saying, you know. Yeah, and those actually did seem to care for continuity since they were yeah. starting at the beginning. Exactly, yeah. Now, Mark was such a comics fan that he drew a spider web across his face with indelible marker that his parents were unable to scrub off in time for his first Holy Communion photo a week later. I don't know if these photos have surfaced or if this is another very convenient story. Yeah. Um, Mark would attend St. Ambrose High. Uh, he was very impressed by the works of Alan Moore and Frank Miller when he was a teen. Uh, at this point, they'd have been producing things like Saga of the Swamp Thing, Watchmen, Daredevil, Dark Knight Returns, you know, all that good stuff. Uh, the the grim, gritty era beginning. Right. Um, now, uh, Mark's family wouldn't allow him to go to art school and instead impressed upon him academics. But then, tragically, Miller's mother died of a heart attack at age 64 when Miller was 14. His father died four years later. Uh, his father was age 65. He initially planned to be a doctor and subsequently decided that being an economist would be a viable alternate plan, but later decided that he couldn't quite hack it in that occupation. This is Mark's uh, thought process as a teen. He just attended... Glasgow University to study politics and economics, and he dropped out after his father's death left him without the money to pay his living expenses. When Miller was 18, he interviewed writer Grant Morrison, who was then doing his first major American work on Animal Man for a British fanzine called F.A., or Fantasy Advisor, Advertiser, sorry, issue number 109. He told Grant that he wanted to write and draw comics, and Grant suggested that Mark concentrate on one of them. The writing, I think, was specifically suggested. Hmm. Two of them struck up a friendship after this. Miller's first job as a comic book writer came when he was still in high school, writing Savior for an independent publisher named Trident. Daniel Vallely provided the art for that. It ran for six issues until Trident went bankrupt. Not an uncommon story for the time, or... For today, pretty much. Even I mean, today, all, yep. all throughout all comics history, it seems that's <laughs> uh, a possibility whenever you jump into the, the uh, field. 
Uh, to Robert Mitchell in 2012, Mark said, My parents had died. I was living on my own in a tiny flat and had no money to pay basic rent. I had a cat, and the cat and I ate alternate days. There wasn't enough money to eat every day. Hunger is a brilliant motivator. It genuinely is. I sold a series called The Savior, and I got 240 pounds for my first script. I remember it exactly because it was so important. Now, as often happens in comics, uh, Savior wasn't Mark's first work to see print. Instead, that was a story called Her Parents, and that was a short slice-of-life tale that appeared in Crisis Number 31, cover date November 1989. Uh, that story would beat Savior to the stands by one month. Uh, when Miller was 17, he began dating a woman named Gil, who lived nearby and attended the same school. Uh, they would get married in 1993. During the 90s, Miller worked on uh, UK comic anthologies, such as 2000 AD, Sonic the Comic, and Crisis. In 93, Miller, Grant Morrison, and John Smith created a controversial eight-week run on 2000 AD that was called the Summer Offensive. Uh, It was together uh, during this run that Miller and Morrison wrote their first major story together, and that was Big Dave. Uh, Miller's British work brought him to the attention of DC Comics, and then in 1994, he started working on his first American strip, Swamp Thing. Uh, With the help of his friend Grant Morrison, as he admitted to Barbley and Cooper in 1998, he would say, Grant, very graciously, just came on board for the first four issues to make sure DC selected me above anyone else pitching for the gig. A few other writers had been mooted, and I doubt I I was the most likely. Uh, I tried to get a couple of books in the past, but was overlooked. It was very, very decent of him, actually. Uh, Mark was a co-writer for those first four issues. That was issues 140 through 143. And then he would be credited solely until the very end of the series with issue 171 uh, with an October 1996 cover date. But that wouldn't be the end of his collaborations with his pal, Grant Morrison. From there, Miller spent time working on various DC titles, often co-writing with or under the patronage of Morrison, as in the cases of his work on JLA, The Flash, and Aztec, The Ultimate Man. In 1998, Miller began writing for Adventures of Superman. This was the animated series uh, comic that was set in that continuity and had the same, a similar look. He'd get an Eisner Award for that work in 2000. Now, in 1986, writing into the magazine F.A., uh, he talking about John Byrne's Man of Steel. He had this to say about Superman: Maybe Man of Maybe altruism is a concept that would make superhero comics tedious in the broad term, but when confined to Superman, it seems so congruent with the rest of his character. It doesn't look silly. Byrne has tried to humanize Superman by giving him sexual feeling, jealousies, and other unlikable traits. Sure, this makes Soup seem more human, but we mustn't forget that human isn't something he's supposed to be. We've got countless already human characters, so there's no need to change Superman. Byrne forgets this is what made Superman so special, because he was different. And I want you to remember those words when we talk about his later works. Uh, That's where I think the context is important here. Uh, John Byrne, for his part, hates when people call Superman Soup, so... No love lost there, I assume. I don't think that. There's no specific response, but I think we can imagine what Byrne would think of that. Well, to be fair, John Byrne doesn't know a whole lot about comic books, right? No, that's true. Maybe he read a couple. (laughs) I think he uh, did E-Man for Charlton, and that was about it. Uh, (laughs) In 2000, Miller replaced Warren Ellis on the authority for DC's Wildstorm imprint. And Miller then announced his resignation from DC in 2001. (laughs) Though his Elseworlds miniseries, uh, Red Sun... That's the one where Superman's a commie, lands in Russia. That was printed in 2003, so obviously it wasn't a 
total resignation, or I guess maybe that was probably in the you know in the works, works and yeah. just still came out. Now, in March 2001, Miller sold a vampire horror, horror miniseries he wrote called Psychside to Channel 4 in the UK. Uh, the department that bought it had created a program called Metrosexuality that was received so poorly that the department was informed by its superiors that the network would not make any other project commissioned by that department again. <laughs> Which ends Psychside's development cycle. Uh, Miller subsequently sold the movie rights to his friend, movie producer Angus Lamont. Now, in 2001, Miller launched Ultimate X-Men from our Marvel Comics' Ultimate Marvel imprint. Now, this is the line of Marvel heroes that are, for lack of a better term, realistic. Right, you know, uh, <laughs> seams in the costumes, although now they all yes. have seams, but that used to be the thing back in the day. Yeah. Now, uh, th- these are these are the ones that the, the movies are based on, because it's a lot easier to follow that continuity than yeah. real continuity. Yeah. Um, now, Mark had no prior experience with the X-Men, and it showed, oh, I mean, um, and, based, <laughs> and based his... <laughs> <clears throat> and based his team on the first X-Men movie That's from 2020th Century Fox uh, His Ultimate X-Men is noted for its edgier, darker take on these Marvel characters To which Mark said in an interview with Sequential Tart You're not competing with Cartoon Network on these books You're competing with television program Buffy uh, uh, Superhero comics aren't adult But they shouldn't be written for five-year-olds either which is why books are in the toilet. Um, now, Mark was now one of Marvel's I'm new of editorializing from... on this episode. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. Uh, now, Marvel, Mark was now one of Marvel's uh, new group of promising writers and well-positioned to write the miniseries that we are about to discuss. That's right. But, of course, we're going to give we'll give a little acknowledgement to the artist who... Despite being having quite a pedigree, did not have a ton of information to drag up, and I guess I sh- I could have just done a, uh, you know, bibliography, but it didn't, it didn't really feel like rattling it off. But there there is still enough to say about Terry Dodson, uh, and a little bit about his wife Rachel Dodson. Terry comes from Oregon originally, began working in 1991 at Revolutionary Comics. These are the guys that put out black and white illustrated bios and stories about rock artists and groups. You ever see these in the wild, Chris? You know what I'm talking yep, about? I do, uh, yeah. I mean, they were they were kitschy and stupid then. Hopefully now you got them for like a dime, and then you can have a good time with them. <laughs> uh, he first came to mainstream co- prominence as the artist on Malibu Comics' uh, Ultraverse title Mantra in 1993. He co-created this character with Mike W. Barr. In early 1996, he drew a four-issue Storm uh, miniseries for Marvel written by Warren Ellis. And later that same year, Terry reunited with Ellis for the three-issue miniseries Pride and Wisdom, starring Kitty Pride and Pete Wisdom. In 2000, Dodson left Marvel for DC Comics, where he penciled a Harley Quinn ongoing series by Carl Kiesel. Written by Carl Kiesel, that is. Dodson returned to Marvel in 2002 to draw Spider-Man and the Black Cat, colon, The Evil That Men Do, a limited series which was not completed until 2006 due to delays. That was a uh, Kevin Smith book. Yeah. Right. I wonder that probably I'm going to say that contributed to the delays. I'm going to just I'm, throw that out there. Well, we're still waiting for uh, what is it? Daredevil Bullseye, the target number two. I don't. That, that first issue of that came out in 2002 think, as well. I think and, first you're definitely going to see uh, Batman: The Widening Geyer book two. <laughs> I think two Haley's comments are going to come by. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, but before that came out. Terry worked with Mark Miller to put out the controversial series Trouble, which we're talking about today. And mm-hmm. I really couldn't find anything about her, but she seems to have done 
just as much work as her husband. Uh, his wife, Rachel, frequently collaborates with him. I couldn't find out yep. where she's from, where she got there, but she does a lot of work, and she does great work, folks. This is uh, really, the art in this book is pretty good. I like it, but, I, you know, looking at some other more recent stuff, they are a talented duo, duo. in comics, I think. Now let's get to the book. Trouble number one, cover dated September 2003. But first, how about we talk about those covers a little bit more? So I just want to draw a little bit about it to say uh, when I first saw these covers in like my life, I was like, well, that's creepy. And let me avoid (laughs) let me avoid these comics. I don't want to get put in any lists. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't want anyone to know about this. Uh, now, having read these comics, I can see and knowing a little bit about you know the time they came out, they're obviously chasing that YA girls market, right? The, the, the novels and and throughout there are ads. You you were yeah. saying four uh, books, Marvel books that were going to be YA literature. This is yeah, exactly the Mary Jane books. Yeah, this is exactly how those covers were at those time. It was photographs of girls doing semi-sexual things or looking cute. You know what I mean? That was the yeah. thing. So uh doesn't make me feel a lot better. It doesn't make me feel great about looking at him still, but there's, there's a little more context. This was not meant to appeal to a adult Us. male. It was meant to appeal to a young girl. Now, the wisdom of putting them where pretty much only adult males shop may, may be suspect, but that we're not gonna that's that's for the marketing and sales department to worry about. But so I, I just wanted to put that out there. And and it, the all the covers are just as Chris described. Two girls in bikinis. Looking coquettish at the camera, sucking mm-hmm. on a lollipop. I don't think we need to describe them. You can see them online, but uh, there was reason for the cover treatment, and now we can begin the comic proper. Well, uh, one more thing here. I, okay. I when I when I pulled these out of the long box, I, you know, when I was growing up, it was embarrassing to be seen coming out of the comic book store. Uh huh. I, I don't know how I put these on a pile of books and brought them to a cash register. Yeah. I don't know how I gave somebody somebody scanned this, and then I gave them money for it. Well, I, I must just not have cared. Was, I, the, was I, the draw just was Miller's new thing? You wanted to uh, see what's I, up. I, what's up I, I, well, I was a I was a zombie. I okay. was definitely a Marvel zombie Fair at this enough. point. But it was I couldn't imagine doing anything similar today. Buying a book with this cover, it's just yeah. I, I don't think I would even. I don't think I'd even buy a book with that cover for like. You know, if I had a niece, you know, I think I'd, I'd have, my, have my wife do it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, even if I had a totally somebody. innocuous, perfectly good reason to do it, I'd still be like, honey, could you please you buy that? And I'll buy the hardcore pornography. Okay, that, that's, the, that's, right. that's the division of labor around here. Anyway, uh, yeah, I just, you know, I, I I really want to say that. I think these covers are, they were misunderstood by me. I think others misunderstand them. Sure. And when you read the comics, which is, you know, you'll have listened to us talk about them and make your own decision whether you want to do that or not uh you would understand that there's there's a reason for the way they look yes and if we use one as a thumbnail for this episode it's going to be our top downloaded episode That's, yeah, most likely <laughs> now, the issue trouble number one like we said september 2003 cover date the story title the summer everybody lost it we open with brothers richard and ben as they ready themselves for their summer jobs working for a resort out in the hamptons uh, loading up their souped-up car that would take them to the moon and back, should Richard be believed. Uh, elsewhere, best pals Mary and May are doing the same. 
They're taking the bus, though, which uh, gives them ample opportunity to both drink the bottle of booze May stole from her parents and allow for uh, May to uh, write her final diary and uh, her diary entry. And not that she's going to die or anything. She's just, you know, she's over the whole diary thing. That's right. Uh, she writes about things that must really sound deep to teenagers, stuff about how people who write in their write about their lives in diaries are wasting their time instead of actually living life. She apologizes to her diary because now that she's set it aside, she's finally going to experience things worth writing about. So then Richard and Ben drive past the bus on the highway and the four teenagers wave to each other. Serendipity. That's right. I have a feeling they're going to they're gonna get to know each other. I just have a funny feeling about that. <laughs> At the resort, we meet their boss for the summer, Peter Howard Shelby, and he's basically a creepy old nerd stereotype. He tells the bundles of raging hormones in front of them him to keep their John Thomases in their trousers, which is how you know he should have a British accent. Yes. Uh, Richard asks if the girls should, too, and... Oh, the laughs we have, the laughs. Uh, and so he becomes the first name in Shelby's little black book. Of deviants and perverts, presumably. Probably, yeah. Uh, we jump right into a work montage. The girls are being kept busy by their slave driver of a Puritan den mother. We see them scrubbing floors, making beds, scrubbing toilets, and washing dishes. So basically, I mean, doing the job they were hired to do is really all. Hired and, and paid for. And yeah. paid for. It's not, like, it's not like they're being whipped or anything. <laughs> no. Now we watch as May waits her first table, and it doesn't go all that well. She's really bad at this. That's okay, though. So are the rest of the kids. Uh, Richard and Ben add some, quote, special relish to a steak he's serving to an especially annoying guest, by which we mean Ben spit into oh, it. Oh, uh, okay. I mean, I mean, this is a more mature book than we normally cover, but but come on. I've just heard stories, Chris, that you wouldn't believe me out there. But, uh... I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so that night, some night in the near future, there's a dance, and the boys go over their drapes code. The drapes are up, nobody's home. If they're down, there's probably one somebody's getting it on in there. If they're half up, they have a girl in there that they want to get rid of. It's also here where Richard offers Ben the redhead, which is to say May. Because if he, Richard, keeps taking the skanky ones, poor Ben will never get laid. I would mm. like to say this isn't the kind of conversation I had with guys as a teenager, but I'd be like... <laughs> uh, Ben's got a box of condoms ready for the adventure, but unfortunately they expired a week ago. Which begs the question, why would you bring a box of condoms about to expire for a summer sex romp? I mean, that's like, it seems like point one of the summer is to do it. You know, get, get a pack of fresh ones, dude. Right. Probably a dozen and while you're at it, at least. Anyway, <laughs> uh, at the dance, the teens pair off and May is being almost more cartoonishly that girl your mother warned you about. She spikes the punch with some vodka. She's a very bad girl, as we'll come she to find. Is. Before dragging Ben out of the lake so they can go skinny dipping. She's the first one in the water, followed pretty quickly by Ben and Richard. Mary is a little more trepidatious, only strips down to her bra and panties, but she jumps in also. Not long before they're discovered by old Shelby, who wanders aloud what orgiastic activities might be going down. He wanders over to the water and plucks May's bra out of the drink. But before he can catch the kids, they kind of slink by him and run away into the bushes. At which time, Shelby's caught holding a teenager's bra by his wife. The couple split off again Each boy girl pairing Retiring to one of their rooms Cabins, dorms, whatever, whatever they are, are yeah. uh, First we join Richard and Mary Who are going at it pretty hot and heavy Until Mary as she's wont to do Gets cold feet And asks Richie to stop Being the gentleman he is 
He does. Sure. They decide to talk and try to get to know each other a little bit better. There's a very, very different scene in May and Ben's room, where May holds a condom aloft and proclaims, Face it, Tiger, you just hit the jackpot. I was kind of hoping she would hold it aloft and said, I have the have power! The power. Which she does. Yeah, well, that's, and that's what starts in uh, <laughs> Trouble Number Two, cover date October 2003, titled What Mom Never Told Us. Uh, May and Ben are still in bed basking in the afterglow. It's established that the boys hail from Forest Hills, the girls are from Brooklyn, or maybe they're from Queens too. It doesn't really remain constant throughout, but, it, you know, they're from the Brooklyn, Queens area. But that Forest Hills. Oddly, oddly specific. Something very something familiar about that place. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, May re- reveals she's saving her money to buy a Scooby-Doo van from a creep down the block. <laughs> Ben's also saving for a car, which kind of surprises May because Ben's brother Richard has got that Mustang for his birthday. Ben says Richard is dad's favorite. Aww. Richard, yeah, Richard's actually everybody's favorite. <laughs> ben asked why May picked him, and she said it's because he'd, he'd care enough to ask why. Elsewhere, Richard and Mary are preparing to part company. Mary's embarrassed that she couldn't do it and hopes that he won't make fun of her or refer to her as Virgin Mary behind her back. I mean, she just gave him the, the perfect way to mock her right there. Right? So it's like, like, why even? I, would, I didn't think of it until she said it. Now I can't exactly. stop thinking of it. Now Mary leaves and Richard complains about Bible thumpers. Uh, you, ever, you ever think that she might just not dig you all that much, yeah, there, Richie? might have nothing to do with the Bible. No. <laughs> now, we jump ahead a few days. Ben and Richie are hauling a guest's luggage and talking about May putting out, and Mary not. Also, the state of Richie's palms. Yeah. <laughs> ben says, Man, let's just say that unless things calm down, I'm going to find myself blowing this entire month wages on condoms, dude. The poor guys only get a 10-cent tip, which isn't even enough to buy a lousy Superman comic these days, because now they cost 12 cents, Mm -hmm. which places our story at some point between 1962 and 1969. Meanwhile, May and Mary discuss, well, like, putting out and not putting out, if you get our drift here. Uh, They even talk about their sexcapades and lack thereof while hanging around a bunch of kids. You're not just begging for HR to get involved, right? You would think so. This seems a little uh, <laughs> little raunchy, but okay. I get no worse than the movie Meatballs, I suppose. Uh, we finally get to payday, and the foursome decides to hit the town and pretend to be fabulously wealthy, which doesn't sound nearly as fun to me as it seems to be for them, but I guess they're right? the ones it's, with the, with the yeah. money. <laughs> I can swear they were all saving for something, but that's uh, besides the point. You know, kids today, as we say, right, Chris? We got mm-hmm. no respect for money. They gallivant around town trying on expensive clothes and jewelry while bragging and talking to folks like they're above them. They also test drive a top-of-the-line $10,000 car, which uh, seemed a little—well, you know, the, it's because the car dealer is sort of giving them a break. You know, he's like, it's me sitting True. around in the office, but yeah, I, I don't think that would happen. <laughs> uh, the day ends with a picnic and a sex fest by the lake, of course. May and Ben head behind a rock to knock boots. But not nearly far enough for their gal pal and, uh, you know, Ben's brother for comfort. That yeah, seems it, weird. It's there, like, maybe 20 feet away, something like maybe. that. Maybe. Something like yeah. that. Uh, uh, so, it's here that Virgin Mary reveals the reason why she won't do it. She was told by a fortune teller that if she were to have sex before marriage, she'd be a mother before she's 20. Richard is shocked and rather annoyed that she'd be buying to such malarkey. <laughs> 
Uh, she continues justifying May's promiscuity by revealing that she was told in the same, by the same fortune teller that no one would ever call her mom. Mm. Back to work. May, in uniform, runs into one of the townies she talked down to on payday during their upscale act. Now, this chubby townie suggests that she can be had in the men's room for about five bucks. And so she punches him in the face. She runs inside where she's comforted by not Ben, but Richie. He asks her if he wants, uh, if she wants him to go out and give the dude a smack. She says no. He says that the townie is trash and asks if she'll be okay. And they kiss. Oh, dun, dun, dun. Or I actually, know. No, it. actually, more like, ooh. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> now that brings us right into trouble number three. November 2003 cover date. No title here. All right. Fair enough. We'll just jump into it. Uh, we pick up with Richie and May doing it, uh, which is an introduction to a while May and Richie bang montage. Elsewhere, Mary is talking to the resort's tots, and coyly tells them that she and Richie have been seeing each other. Ben is washing dishes, crowing about his sexual conquest of May. Mary sings while she serves what she calls London broil, but actually looks like a cartoon T-bone steak and some some crushed oranges (laughs) (laughs) sitting on a bed of lettuce. Uh, Ben goes out to buy May a $5 bouquet. Mary buys a bridal magazine, which uh, this all goes to show us that Richie's sure got himself some stamina. Yeah, I mean, this seems like a full 24 hours of uh, stuff. He's still going at it, but all right. Afterward, May says Richie ain't her type. The whole thing is physical. Richie says May is too slutty and cheap for him to be serious about, like right to her face as she's buttoning her blouse. They're just really kind of being very mean to each other. The two begin to argue, but before long, wind up making out again, of course. Later, Mm. back in the girl's dorm, or whatever it is, May tells Mary that she's cheating on Ben, but obviously doesn't say with who, why she mentioned that at all. It's a good question. but uh, That's a good question. She says Ben's getting far too serious for her. They makes the promise not. Mary makes the promise not to tell. After some hesitation, agrees to it. After all, she's got a date with Richie later on. We join May and Ben, who are guess what, having sex. Hey, in a sand trap at the 15 hole on the on the golf course. <laughs> ben asks about the fortune teller nonsense that Mary told Richard about, and May confirms that it happened, but says that she doesn't buy it. She comes from an amazing line of breeders, don't you know? You just wait. <laughs> now, May does say that the seer's name was Gray, uh, which is a, a little uh, nice little Easter egg there. Mm. And she says that uh, this Gray comes from an amazing line of psychics. Mm. Uh, they, Yeah, it's odd. They talk about what colleges they're going to, but May doesn't want to talk about that. After all, she's the best-looking chick in the state, and they should just go back to doing it. All right. And so they do. Uh, (laughs) Later on, Ben and Mary are working on the decorations for the oldies dance night. Ben asks Mary if she thinks May is cheating on him, causing her to drop and shatter the disco ball she's trying to hang. A disco ball? I mean, isn't this uh, back in the 60s, didn't you say? Between 62 and 69, right? And if this was an oldie day, oldies dance, are disco balls especially representative of the music of the 1940s? That's, that's, that's right. This, is, this doesn't make any sense, but all right. Uh, well, Mary reassures Ben that May ain't fooling around and, tri- and attributes any difference in her behavior to that chubby townie given her grief last issue. Little does she realize that May never confided in Ben about that. Mm. And so he heads off to confront the weasel. 
Along the way, Ben tells off their boss, just as he's feeling his oats, and pushes the townie into the men's bathroom. Mary gives chase and runs into Richard along the way. She tells him what's up, and he runs off to help his bro. But Ben's not allowed to fight. The NYPD made him promise. Richard runs to the bathroom and finds the townie. It's okay. Ben got his butt kicked and had his head stuck in the toilet. Turns out he's not allowed to fight because he's not very good at it. Later, back at the boys' dorm, Richie and May are... Guess what? Doing it! Hey! Ben, in a neck brace, walks in but doesn't see anything. And he kind of forgot to check the drape situation. But he goes in and it's kind of spins right back out, rushes outside and runs right into Mary, who has some cream for his bruised face. She has to go inside to help him apply it, but he lies and tells her that the field hockey team are changing in there because there's a wasp hive in the locker room. As being the Hamptons, we're really not sure what kind of wasps he's talking it's about. It's true. <laughs> Either way, you don't want to be, probably be there when they're buzzing. Uh, but Mary notices that the hockey team is actually on the field playing as they speak, like, right next to them. That's not even like... Right next oh, to the house. It's yeah. right there. Uh, but doesn't call Ben out on it. Now from here, we hop into another montage. Richard's feeling super guilty and offers Ben the use of his car, his money, maybe even his condoms that are hopefully not expired. We hope so. Uh, now, May, on the other hand, seems to be self-destructing. She stays out late. She's getting into games of strip poker, which, uh, much to the delight of the rest of the workers, she ain't terribly good at. Uh, or Mary maybe tells she's Rich- great at, depending on Or you maybe know. she's really good at it. Uh, now Mary tells Richard that May is cheating on Ben. He obviously plays dumb. Uh, We wrap this chapter at the girls' dorm, where May tells Mary that her period is two and a half weeks late. Mary tells her they need to get to the clinic for a—she called it a rabbit test. Uh Uh, May sobs and tells her she's already been. May is knocked up. And that just takes us directly into trouble issue number four, cover date December 2003. Again, we have no title, but the first words in this issue are sound effects from vomit. So we might want to call this one, Herk! I think so. Uh, that sounds good enough. As you might imagine, this issue opens with Mary's head in, the di- in a diner toilet. Uh, Mary's joins with May's head in a diner toilet, sorry. Uh, good, good job with having the names one letter off from each other. Right. <laughs> um, Mary joins her to make sure she's okay, and May sure to lashes out at her. After losing her lunch, the pair head to a table for a rather large breakfast. Mary asks May if she knows who the father is, and May acts insulted until realizing she hasn't exactly been chased the past several weeks. We learn here that May's father is abusive, and he's, she's afraid her mother will get walloped if she finds out if he finds out she's pregnant. May jokes that their visit to the fortune teller was a waste of two bucks, which makes a light bulb appear over Mary's head. Well, not literally, but, you oh, know. Okay. <laughs> and so, Mary runs to Richard's dorm and gets this. They, they do it. And do it. Uh-huh. And do it. Uh-huh. And do it. And uh-huh. do it. And do it. And do All it. Right. And do it. And do it. <laughs> we, we jump ahead, and May is visiting Richie, and she's planning on breaking the news of her bun in the oven. He also has some news, and she lets him speak first. Since he's now getting it from Mary, he no longer needs May. It's not like they even liked each other anyway. She lies, and she tells him that's exactly what she came here to tell him as well. Uh, later on, we join Ben and Mary—I'm sorry, Ben and May oy, in bed, and May is now planning on breaking the news to him. Just like before, he's got some news to tell her, no. but she insists this time she's going to go first. So she tells him she's pregnant. He tells her he's sterile. Ooh, well, that answers that question, I guess. Uh, I'm wondering, when did he find out he was sterile? 
I, I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, because he brought condoms. <laughs> and he's eight. That's, true. that's a good point there. Plus, he's eighteen. Are they really testing him for virility at this point? But uh, well, Chris, I want to ask you how many times you've had a had a conversation with your wife where you both had news simultaneously. Oh, every day. And had to had to allow one to speak <laughs> before the other. I mean. Well, that's actually like a five-minute conversation in and of itself. It's like, no, you go. No, 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 you go. No, no, you first. No, no, you first. Yes. <laughs> no, never. That never happened. Uh, well, it, it turns out that poor Ben, since he was in all those fights— in one of those fights, he got a particularly bad kick to the junk, and uh, and as such, he cannot make it a baby. She tells him everything. We don't actually see her tell him everything. Uh, we, start, we see her tell Mary that she told him everything, uh, and Mary is still not wise to May's mystery man. Yeah, still in the dark. But Ben, he starts to pack, and he's done uh, here at this yeah. uh, resort. Forget this. Richard comes in to try and reason with him. More accurately, he's there to ask that he not tell Mary that he's been boycotting her roommate for the past couple of months. Ben tells Richie he's pathetic, which causes Richie to cry. Mm. We join Mary and May at the abortion clinic where she has an appointment for a consultation. That night, she's haunted by the old angel and devil on her shoulders bit. They don't have to get specific here. Suffice to say, one shoulder sitter thinks the abortion's a capital idea, the other, not so much. We learn more about May's abusive father and her fundamentalist upbringing when she decides there might be a third option. Hmm. The following morning, Mary comes in to wake May, only to find her bed already made, and she's left a note. Turns out May's third option is running away. Hey. And not before stealing all of May's savings. Mary's savings, though. <laughs> Which, sadly, might be the smartest thing she's done the whole summer. That, that actually might be the best of uh, all the options. <laughs> Uh, we see May hitchhiking and being a good-looking gal not long before a mustachioed creep in a station wagon rolls up. He's Philadelphia bound, which is good enough for her. The chapter wraps up with Mary telling Richard that May has split. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to tonight's main event. That's right. Trouble, <laughs> trouble number five. January 2004 cover date. Once again, no title. Now, the final chapter opens with Prego May in bed with the creep who picked her up hitchhiking last issue. She's writing in her diary. You remember the one she said goodbye to a couple months earlier. Dear diary, do you remember how confident I was when I said that life was about to get far too exciting to write to you anymore? I'm glad you asked. Yes, we do remember that. We just talked about that a minute ago. <laughs> well... Things got a little more exciting than I could have ever imagined, and the irony is, you're all I've got left. We learn that the new man in her life is named Paolo, and he's a shower curtain importer. That sounds pretty lucrative. People always need those, right? Yeah, right. Those never go out of style. Uh, he also scares the bejesus out of her. And me. Uh, and me, too. <laughs> now, together, they live in a trailer, and it's an absolute disgrace. Their bed is covered in porn and beer stains. At least uh, we hope those are beer stains. Yes. Now, uh, she imagines how life would have been if not for the pregnancy. At this point, she and her Forestillian friends would be wrapping up their tour of duty in the Hamptons and preparing to enter the next stage of their lives. Together, apart, it don't matter. She's been hiding her pregnancy from Paolo, lest he beat the hell out of her and or kick her out. At this point, she thinks back to her youth and when she first met Mary. She really loved me in her own strange way. Loved me to the point where even Mom was kind of worried she had a secret little crush. 
Yeah, I don't think she had anything to worry about. Uh, we join May as she makes a phone call to her parents. Her father answers, but she cannot bring herself to speak. She hangs up. She hangs up and then leaves the phone booth. She hesitates and thinks to herself, there might be someone she could call. And so we jump ahead to a bus depot where May meets with Mary. This new guy been slapping you around? What? The sunglasses. Oh, right. We should probably mention that May is rocking the shades. Yes. She says, oh, yeah. Good. You deserve it. You deserve every kick and every punch. And ho- In fact, I hope he hits you so hard sometime, you end up in the hospital and lose your stupid baby. Damn. <laughs> I guess the news is out. Yikes. Uh, she got cold. <laughs> Mary confirms she knows the father is Richie and that May and she, he were banging behind her back. She says she assumed it for a while and all this did was make it official. We learned that Mary was broken up with Richie and is now one of the only four to only one of the four to be still working in the Hamptons. Uh, May is uh, May and Richie have bumped uglies forty fit forty seven times. Yes. I don't know why that's an important uh, factoid to know, but that's the amount of times. Yes. And that Richie writes to her almost every day, but she never writes back. Writes to Mary, that is. Yes. Now, May just unloads all of her emotions on Mary here. Uh, the fear she has of having the baby, fear of her parents, fear of shower curtain Paolo. I swear, if I didn't think I would hurt the baby, I'd kill myself right now. Seriously, help me, Mary. You were always the smart one. Just help me figure a way out of this. The gals embrace, and the scene ends. We jump six months later. And we are in Forest Hills, where Richie is in his garage, chatting up his dad while working on his hoopty of a ride. <laughs> At this point, we learn that he gave the stang to Ben. Wow, Dad says starting to regret giving Betty Boy the old Mustang? Nah, he gets more action out of it than I ever did. Have you seen the Long Island chick he's been dating the past couple weeks? Man, talk about a chassis in mint condition. Dad rubs in the fact that Richie doesn't have a chick of his own. He says... Must be kind of nice to have a girlfriend who writes back every once in a while. That's just mean, right? Yeah. I thought Richie was his favorite. I mean, at least he's his, he is his son, for <laughs> crying out loud. I mean, sheesh. <laughs> now, well, speak of the devil, Mary appears in the driveway, and she's not alone. She's holding a baby. Her baby, maybe. Huh? <laughs> well, Richie's, that is. Don't worry, it'll, it'll all eventually make sense. Okay. Kind of. Dad says, uh... What are you doing, Mary? Just introducing our little boy to his daddy, sweetheart. (laughs) Now Mary lies and tells him that she stayed in the Hamptons until she gave birth, with the plan all along being she'd give up the tot for adoption, but then she couldn't go through with it. Richie gets all incredulous. Mary, what are you talking about? This isn't our kid. We never even... Oh, wait a minute. We did, didn't we? Yeah, for like an entire day. At least. Yeah. Mary offers him the old tomato. (laughs) You really want me? You gotta do the right thing here. Wanna know what really happened? Well, luckily May wrote it all down in her diary. How convenient. She she writes, I still can't believe anyone would ever do that for somebody, even their best friend, asking the Shelbys, their Hamptons bosses, to take us on again and keeping me company. There was another... Up there was another, but risking your entire future just to bail someone out? That chick has stones the size of watermelons. 
you. Uh, Mary, saw, Mary saw this as an opportunity to see if Richie was really into her. If he stood up and, quote, did the right thing, she'd know that they were meant to be. Now, this would also prove the fortune teller Ms. Gray correct. Mary would, in fact, be a mother before she turned 20, and nobody would ever call May mom. You think maybe she'll look out and someone will call her aunt sometime? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Could happen. Yeah. yeah. And so, the Wild Hamptons months end. Mary and May return to Queens, or maybe Brooklyn, but probably Queens. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Mary's parents couldn't be happier to have a tiny tot running around the house. Uh, May's parents were so overjoyed that their daughter was safe, they didn't ask any questions. Though May does say via her diary that they, they knew the score. Of course, my own parents knew exactly what had happened. They never said a word, as was their way but I could just see the relief in their eyes as they opened the door. And we jump 18 months this time, and it's the wedding of Mary and Richard. Ben is Richie's best man, indicating that they'd patch things up. Yeah, May is writing in her diary, 18 months later, Mary and Richie made everything that little bit more official, and baby Peter that little bit more legitimate. Peter, huh? I, I think we're going to need uh, the dictionary definition of legitimate I here, right? I think so, yeah. I don't think it falls in there. <laughs> uh, now, Ben uh, meets up with May at a catering table. It's, it's, I'm not sure. It's hinted at that Mary and May run a catering company together, maybe. Uh, so maybe, maybe May is helping to... <laughs> I know she's there as a guest, but maybe she has something to do with the catering as well. Uh, anywho, at the table, the two awkwardly catch up. May looks a bit more matronly than we're accustomed, and her her hair is in a bun, and it looks kind of familiar. I, I just mm -hmm. can't put my finger yeah, on it. It's very familiar, sure. Yeah. Now, uh, the, the story May and Mary are telling is that May lost her baby. Got to figure folks probably think Richie's about the most fertile fellow around the area if he can make pregnancies happen in such close proximity. He's just, he just popping them just out. Anytime, just every time he shoots, he, he fires, you know. <laughs> now Ben's Long Island date tries to pull him away <laughs> for a dance. To the neck, even. I really, I couldn't imagine dancing to my Sharona, but hey, this is the <laughs> right? 60s, I guess, right? Whatever. <laughs> now, uh, he sticks around with May for a minute longer and asks her about the Scooby-Doo van. You remember that from way earlier. Uh, she says she never got it, and the creeper down the block screwed her out of her $20 deposit. Ben jots down a phone number of someone who can teach her how to drive before heading back to his date for a cha-cha. Uh, the story ends with May opening the note... And looking at the phone number, and wouldn't you know it, it's Ben's. Oh, what a nice, a bittersweet. Is that what we'd call that? I don't know. Happy. I think we could call it. Happy, sure. weird, creepy, little strange. <laughs> uh, definitely a very strange series. I'm like, it's something very, very familiar about these characters. I, yeah, we might need to talk off the air about this. I'm yeah. not sure what we, uh, what we got to figure out. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back to give you our thoughts about the uh, this series Trouble, some uh, creator wrap-up, and then we're going to talk a little bit about some folks that contributed to this kind of malarkey around that time. <laughs> hey, Girl Crush girls, add some flair. Fashion flips go everywhere. Let's go. 
Hey, welcome back, everybody. We are talking about Mark Millar and the Dodson's Trouble for Epic, the imprint for Marvel Magazine. Uh, you know, we just went through all five issues. Ben and, uh, Peter? It's, uh, wait, wait, wait. Hold, hold, hold on, hold on. Hold, what, hold, hold, what's hold. that? Okay, wait. I might. This, tell me if I'm insane here. Okay. Forest Hills, Ben and May, mm-hmm. Mary Richard, a kid named Peter? Hmm. Did now, we just read a Spider-Man story? I think we may have read a Spider-Man story, the story of May, Aunt May, and Uncle Ben, and oh my God. Peter Parker's uh, origin story before he was uh, Spider-Man. Uh, that's kind of crazy. Kind I wonder crazy. if do you think this will ever be adapted into a movie? I don't think so. Definitely not the kind no. of movie you're going to see in a uh, <laughs> multiplex. That to tell you that for sure. <laughs> this is a private room type of uh, theater. Yeah, th- this was really interesting story. Like I said, uh, I I've avoided this. For, I all I did was saw the covers years ago, and I was like, nope, that's all <laughs> nope. I need to know. Uh, which actually probably is the correct reaction, to be honest with you. But uh, it's the only reaction for yes. a, for the uh, uh, adult male, but. Uh, Having read it now and not knowing anything about what a 13, 14-year-old girl wants to read anyway, but it, it struck me as something similar to uh, Forever by Judy Bloom, or kind of coming-of-age <laughs> books like that, young adult books. And in, in that way, it's not awful to me, you know what I mean? It, it's, definitely, oh. it's definitely hyper-sexualized, definitely has very goofy teenage situations, but... Not more than I'd expect from a, a book of this type, you know. Kind of reminds me even of a catcher in the rye. That'd be like the boys' side of it. Certainly, uh, certainly. However, in the context that these characters are Aunt May and Mary <laughs> Parker ben. and Uncle Ben, yeah, it gets a little, it gets a little creepy. Then, then I know it's, it's like hearing about your parents having sex. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know what happened. You don't really want to know the details, though. You know, you, you don't need the video cassette. No. So, uh, it, it, this is definitely very interesting. Uh, you know, this was Chris's pick, and you, we talked about doing this a while ago. It's just kind yeah. of only got around to it now. Uh, and you hadn't read it for years either. It wasn't like it was. Uh, it wasn't you, fresh in my you, mind. You just no. knew it to be. You just knew it to be strange. You know what I mean? But. Uh, I I have to say, having read it now, I you know, if I were to see a thirteen year old girl reading it, I would think nothing of it. I'd think that the right thing had happened, and this was a a good sequence of events. So, uh, <laughs> no, it, yeah. so I I picked this because I thought it was going to be something we would totally roast, but uh, like you said, it's it, it's not it's not half bad for what it it's trying to be, and. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's not even a whole lot outside of the fact that it might be Mary, May, Ben, and Richard. It's there's really nothing that we can really raz too hard about it. Which is it's not explicitly it, stated. Also, this is no, all no. Also, it but, can be or it yeah. cannot be depending on whatever you want. Yeah, I definitely um, saw some some uh, commentary on the internet when I was doing research of people like, <laughs> "Don't worry, folks, this isn't part of continuity." You know, like people. People were really worried about this. That would, you know, Aunt May might have been promiscuous or something. But anyway, but it does it does add that interesting wrinkle that Peter has always been May's son. That's which, true. It, that's interesting. I, I, that's kind of neat, I guess. It, it does yeah, where, sort of change the dynamic, but it doesn't. It's, it's, it doesn't change the nuts and bolts of what we know, you know. So it, it, it's clever in that way. Uh, it's just you know considering Aunt May and her wheat cakes. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't want to. I just don't. Didn't more. Didn't really want to go to this this way. Although, as Chris also pointed out, in one of our discussions. Now, May has had sex dozens of times uh, every since issue, then. Every since, issue, since, uh, she's she's yeah. having a pretty robust sex life. So, 
whatever i guess anything goes folks here, here it is <laughs> no i wouldn't when this was first coming out and i don't remember if it was explicitly solicited as a you know maybe this happened you know maybe this is real but i, I always liked it in the fact that you know we have peter keeping the secret from may his entire life and, mm-hmm. and now we find out if you accept this as part of the continuity that may is also keeping a secret from peter that's so I, I like that yeah that is cool yeah but you know, it's a, you know. I guess if you want it to be real, it's real. If you don't, don't worry about it. This this will never be referenced again. And yeah. it's uh, as we learned this week, it's not even on the Marvel app. I, yeah, no, I don't know. What, at least <laughs> I thought it was. This has vanished. But but like I say, the important thing is it doesn't really change anything about anything. Peter Parker's Spider-Man origin. Anything that happens after that. So good deal. I don't know if I would recommend other. Adult dudes read it, frankly, but you know it's out there. It's 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 the, it's there to it's be. It's in the world. You're right. <laughs> now let's hop into uh, our wrap up here with uh, Mark Miller. Uh, we left him as he was writing Ultimate Spider-Man, and I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, Ultimate X-Men. But after 33 issues, he left Ultimate X-Men. Uh, in the early 2000s, uh, he and Grant Morrison had a falling out. There really isn't a whole lot of definitive information on this split mm. beyond it, that it. The fact that it did happen around 2000. One source claimed that Miller didn't like that Grant Morrison admitted to ghostwriting one of his issues of Authority. In an interview, it was, uh, I think it was Authority number 28. That's right, which actually, uh, wait, I did, you did supply the evidence, so this, this uh, part. Yeah, there is a little bit of, a little bit of evidence, but, but we, d- we know that he ghostwrote it, and that, you that's know, about he it. did cop to it, but <laughs> as to whether that made Miller mad, it, it's, un, you know what I mean, it's not clear, but anyway. Yeah, so we're going to hop to August 2011, where Grant Morrison told Rolling Stone magazine, I met Mark when he was 18, and I really got on with him, because he laughed at all my jokes. He has the same sense of humor as me. He's very dark, and has that sense of humor, so we bonded. I used to phone him every day, and we ended up doing some work together on 2000 AD, which went well. It was a funny, it was funny stuff. We'd meet in the pub and get drunk and do this Big Dave strip, which was a comedy strip, and obviously, he was trying to get into American comics, so I got him on Swamp Thing. And they asked me to write the book, but I said, let's get Mark in, let's give him the job. So I consulted with him on the stories, and so on through the 90s. When he got the authority book, his star started to rise, and at that point, he felt that he was in my shadow and he had to get out. And the way to get out was to do this fairly uncool split. It was quite hard, I felt, but he, but he had to make his own way, and he was in denial that I'd been there, because I saw a lot of his work had been plotted or devised, even dialogue suggestions were done by me right up until the point of, of the Ultimates. He was, he, it was seen by him as a diminution. Yeah, it's not an actual <laughs> word, it? so it's on, I would say diminution. <laughs> diminution. Yeah. Uh, I'm guessing a sliding or a right. diminishing. Diminishing, yeah. Yeah. It was seen by him as a uh, diminishing of his position, even though it wasn't. I was quite proud of him as a mentor. He'd done well without me. He has his own style. He does his own stuff. It was kind of that archetype. You get caught up in that story. Yeah, and about their bad blood, Mark Millar told Rich Johnson years earlier, uh, basically, we've never written anything for each other uncredited. We're both too good and too busy to do ghost jobs, but authority number 28 tobacco came out of me going into the hospital from amusingly Intrusive cancer tests at the same time Art desperately needed script Fate lent a hand in the shape of Grant Morrison who ghosted the original script for Art Once I was back on my feet I tweaked it to make sure the style A little closer to what had gone before And suit any DC revisions Though two or th- roughly two or three pages And that's that really 
Later in the interview with Rolling Stone, it was suggested that since Grant and Mark both live in Glasgow, they might run into each other. To which Grant replied, there's a very good chance of running into him, and I hope I'm going 100 miles an hour when it happens. So things might not be as amicable as they were first making sound in those... (laughs) First couple of quotes, but yeah. It seems like the aggression is coming from a certain party, and another party is kind of just trying to ignore that the split happened. I would Uh, very much agree with that assessment of it, yeah. It's definitely the the one that would like to be going 100 miles an hour would be the aggressor, the others. Probably. But but still, you know, I still want to say... It's it's really unclear. There's no like moment that someone can say there was a conversation, and from no. that moment, I I couldn't see anything like that. So, a lot of his conjecture, folks. We just know that there's no love lost between yeah. them. We just know they ain't tight no more. No, and they were real tight too. But anyway, yeah. uh, in 2004, Mark wrote my Marvel Knights Spider-Man series and co-wrote with Brian Michael Bendis the first six six issues of Ultimate Fantastic Four. He later returned to that title for a 12-issue run throughout 2005 to 2006, and his storylines during that period led to the creation of the Marvel Zombies spin-off series. In 2004, Miller Miller launched a creator-owned line called Miller World that published the books Wanted, Chosen, and The Unfunnies, Kick-Ass, and War Heroes by four different publishers. These were namely Avatar, Icon, the Marvel Comics imprint, Image, and Dark Horse. In 2006, Miller, joined by artist Steve McNiven, began writing the Marvel miniseries Civil War. In February 2008, Mark began a run on Fantastic Four with artist Brian Hitch. That same year, he wrote the miniseries Marvel 1985 with artist Tommy Lee Edwards. Miller explained the series is about the real world, the world we live in right now, dealing with the villains of the Marvel Universe finding us. Uh, also in 2008, Mark wrote Old Man Logan storyline, which appeared in the Wolverine series and was set in a possible future. Uh, Miller was among the group of writers enlisted by Iron Man, the uh, 2008 film by Paramount, director uh, John Favreau, to give advice on the script. In 2009, Mark, Mark and his wife Gill separated after being married 16 years. In 2010, Miller uh, wrote two other creator-owned superhero titles through the Marvel's imprint Icon, those being Nemesis with artist Steve McNiven and Superior with artist Lionel Francis Yu. On on April 9th, 2011, Miller was one of the 62 comic creators who appeared on the IGN stage at the Kapow Convention in London to set two Guinness World Records, those being the fastest production of a comic book and most contributors to a comic book. The uh, book was completed in 11 hours, 19 minutes, and 38 seconds, and was published through Icon on November 23, 2011, with all royalties being donated to the York Hill Children's Foundation. And it would also win another award later, the most unreadable comic book. No, I'm okay. That's uh, the, yeah, I, I would imagine. There, there, <laughs> there, believe it or not, there are still some other contenders for that that have taken the <laughs> proper production process, so it's hard to get. Yeah. I'm sure this was a hot mess, but uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, a cool, it's a cool little gimmick, but yeah. I'm sure, sure it came out crazy. But, but to pay money for it is something altogether different. Yeah. Um, in September 2012, Miller was brought on to oversee 20th Century Fox's cinematic uh, Marvel Universe as creative consultant for the X-Men film franchise and the Fantastic Four film so, franchise. So think about this. You know, he based his first X-Men work off the X-Men movies. Mm-hmm. Now he's informing the movies. 
Indeed. You know, I, what, they don't even need the comics. Based with that, what I'm telling you, Chris, in case you couldn't tell by now. <laughs> what, what is it? They, they call that a, what is it, an Ouroboros? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's eating its own tail. Yes. Now, uh, several of Mark Miller's properties have been made into movies. Uh, in addition to, I think, a lot of napkins he screwed up, scribbled no time. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we're going to go with, uh, we have Wanted in 2008, Kick-Ass in 2010, Kick-Ass 2 in 2013, Kingsman, The Secret Service in 2014, and right now, Kingsman, The Golden Circle. 2017. Yeah. Uh, not to mention, much of the work in the Marvel Ultimate line has become the template for the uh, Marvel Marvel Marvel, blah, 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 Marvel movie universe. Mm-hmm. And in 2017, Mark Miller sold Miller World to Netflix for what is likely some ungodly sum of money. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't even disclose it, so it's probably very obscene. Probably, yes, probably <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. uh, Mark lives with his daughter, Lucy, and uh, their daughter, uh, his partner, Lucy, and their daughter uh, in Glasgow, Scotland. Yeah, Scotland's not that loose. It's, uh, you know, no. it's still, yeah, your daughter no, 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 no. your partner that I know of. <laughs> I just want to say a brief thing, though, about Mark Miller. Uh, you know, this is a very people are very conflicted about this uh, person, Mark Miller. You know, some people love all of his work, some people are hate all of his work. A lot of people feel two ways about it, but you know, there is definitely a feeling that he was some some sort of an interloper, right? You think am I? You think I'm way off base here that he kind of came no, into I, comics I, late? And, I, I uh, think I think yeah, the interloper and uh, a passionless interloper at that. It's it's very interesting to me, especially given his you know fandom that can actually be traced at a very at a much earlier age, that later in his life he basically has made a living just constantly deconstructing superheroes, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that's something you know we all love Watchmen. There's other works of that type that I like, even Astro City by Kurt Busey. It could be considered a kind of deconstruction of superheroes and comic books, mm-hmm. but uh, when that's all you when all you're doing is you know sticking a gun in the hand of a, of a hero. Or whatever, you know what I mean? Or, you know, yeah. making a hero into an alcoholic or making him into a, you know, making a villain a child molester. Um, yeah. Or the victim of child molestation. So you can, this, uh... It's, you know, yeah, exactly. You know, it's just getting increasingly, quote unquote, real. You got to wonder, like, is how real is that? But anyway, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I don't really have a wrap up to that thought except to say, like, we recognize that this is a contentious sub figure. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have our own little editorial comments here and there too, but you know, point being the facts are out there, there's an accomplished person he's written a lot of comics and uh, definitely want to preserve that and make that, you know, part of the facts. Anyway. Yeah. Well, he uh, also ended my stint as a Marvel zombie with I was, was going to add that into the history. Exactly. Yeah, because I, I that's when I stopped buying everything Marvel because Marvel became less about characters and more about one man's skewed vision of the characters. Uh, characters were not who they who they had been for forty years. They were who were needed to fill a certain scene. Right. And uh, and I mean, in the fifteen years since that, Marvel has gone even further in that direction to where characters are walking agendas rather than what they were originally I mean, comics, portrayed as being. Except for a fairly brief time during around the image revolution comics well for a long time no one knew who the creators were nor did they really care sure and then when they started to know they were really writer driven and marvel definitely is is there so is dc i mean i I think there's no comic company that isn't like that but marvel did have that kind of renaissance with mark miller with you know brian michael bendis and and john jonathan hickman and then matt fraction showed up and all these uh young uh, new writers writing in a new way and writing in this 
hyper real way uh it's definitely informed their publishing plan for the last 15 years i'd 15, say at least 20, years, 20 yeah. years and uh that is what it is you know i you know and, mm-hmm. and it's funny because i do think the artists they have some great artists over there too it's not like they don't have the artists to follow but it definitely seems like you follow a writer more than you used to follow a character uh, mm-hmm. You know, I I don't really have a much more common. Maybe on another show we could do a whole, yeah, <laughs> a more commentary on that fact. You know, uh, but Miller is really is a symptom and not a cause of that. I would say, you know, what I mean? he didn't Certainly. he didn't invent that trend, nor is he at this point even at the uh, the forefront. Although he's definitely at one of the you know forefronts. Is that? Yeah, that. he's he's just out of the shared universe and stuff. Yeah, so. Now that we've talked uh, ourselves, or I've talked myself into a corner, let me let's go <laughs> on to wrap up with Terry Dodson. Yes. Uh, in 2004, Dodson and Miller reteamed to launch a new ongoing Spider-Man series, the aforementioned Marvel Knight Spider-Man. They left after a 12-issue arc. And so did all the rest of the readers. Hey, Dodson provided <laughs> covers and interior art for DC Comics' 2006 relaunch of Wonder Woman. Beginning in 2007, Dodson served as the artist for Uncanny X-Men, a position he'd shared with artist Greg Land. They kind of swapped story arcs back and forth. In 2014, General Mills enlisted the help of DC Comics to create new designs for its monster-themed serials in time for Halloween. Uh, the designs, revealed on August 6th, consisted of Count Chocula design, Count Chocula design by Dodson. And there were other, hey. they all got, Boo Berry all got redesigned, Frankenberry. Uh, the Yummy car- Mummy? I don't think so, but I think the fruit, <laughs> the fruit one. What is that? Fruit fruit, fruit root. Fruit root. Yeah, I think he was redesigned. <laughs> uh, he currently draws stuff for Marvel Comics and pretty much does covers for everyone. From what I can tell, more or less writes his own ticket. I think people, yeah, they want that Dudson art. Yeah, he pops up everywhere and anywhere. He's good stuff. Very good stuff. The, the, him and his wife together, yeah. Yeah, like we said earlier, great, great team. Definitely. Now, we did mention that this Trouble series came from Epic Comics. This is uh, Marvel's imprint, so let's talk a little bit about that. We're going to go way back to the beginning here. In 1982, Jim Shooter launched Marvel's Marvel's Epic Comics publishing line, which would serve primarily as Marvel's creator-owned line of comics. Uh, This would spin out of Marvel's own Epic Illustrated magazine, which launched in spring of 1980, and that was sort of Marvel's attempt at chasing heavy metal magazine, kind of. Yeah. Uh, now, Epic Illustrated would run for 34 issues uh, through cover date February 1986, so pretty pretty uh, healthy run. It also wouldn't be bound by the Comics Code Authority, and it often featured stories with more mature themes, including nipples. Uh, Very much so. That was how I remembered it as a kid. Uh, introduced Jim Starlin's Dread Star via the Metamorphosis Odyssey, ran Dave Sims' Young Cerebus Strip. Uh, not everything was creator-owned, however. Uh, it... Epic Illustrated also ran John Burns to this day unfinished The Last Galactus Story. Mm-hmm. Now, the mag uh, featured some big names in fantasy and fiction, including Holland Ellison, the brothers Hildebrandt, Frank Frazetta, Boris Vallejo, and Jean Girard, better known to us as Mobius. Uh, in 1982, Jim Shooter would offer Archie Goodwin the gig of overseeing the epic line of comics, and he turned it down. 
that is, until Jim Shooter gave the gig to Bill Mantlo, at which time Archie wanted to know what happened to his imprint. Uh, now, Epic featured creator-owned works such as Gru and ElfQuest, uh, though apparently Sergio Aragonis was a bit nervous about hopping into bed with Marvel and instead published Gru's earlier stories via Pacific Comics. Which uh, really yeah, doesn't really. speak to a vote of confidence. Yeah, let me go, let me go with these guys over here. Well, they, they yeah, have... let me just establish the character here in case you guys screw me. In case you screw it, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, he, I mean, I remember when it was specific. Also, uh, you know, Gru really took the word world by storm when it showed up. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, the actual imprint was rumored to have been started due to Frank Miller shopping around his Ronin story. He would ultimately go with DC in 1983, but Shooter holds firm that he would have gotten a better deal in Marvel. Epic continued to publish creator-owned as well as Marvel-owned stories like Silver Surfer, Parable, Elektra, Assassin, Havoc, Wolverine, Meltdown until 1994, with only Akira manga translations taking the line into early 1996. Much like the Marvel icon line of today, this allowed many of Marvel's top-tier talent an opportunity to publish their own creator-owned work. Chris Claremont and John Bolton did a Black Dragon. J.M. DeMatteis did Moonshadow, which would be reprinted the following decade through DC's Vertigo. Steve Gerber did Void Indigo. Steve Engelhart did Coyote. Bill Sienkiewicz did Straight Toasters, which would later be reprinted by Graffiti Designs. Jim Starlin did the aforementioned Dread Star, which would leave Epic for First Comics and continue its numbering and ongoing narrative there. Peter David took over writing chores and also produced a Dread Star miniseries for Malibu. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, they took on uh, licensed work during the 1990s, including a line from Clive Barker and uh, William Shatner's Tech War. Other notable uh, creator-owned stuffs, we got Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, we got the Mobius Library. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, also, they used Epic as a sort of a shared universe in and of itself here. In uh, 1988, they launched a line of four comics under the Shadow Line banner, which was a mature take on a shared universe superheroes. as uh, featured such luminaries as Dr. Zero, Powerline, and St. George. Oh, that's my favorite character, right. Me too, me too. Uh, now, this was an Archie Goodwin idea, which was canned pretty quickly due to low sales. Um, these are uh, Marvel-owned characters, uh, two of which made cameos in the semi-recent Secret Wars, the 2015 event. Mm. And uh, the 1990s uh, Marvel horror character, Terror Inc., Terror Inc. Uh, he's the guy with the whiskers. Like a, He looks like a P.I. with whiskers, basically. Oh, all right. Uh, now, he first appeared in an issue of St. George. But this is the old epic. This ain't the epic we're talking about today. Oh, no. The epic we're talking about today is way wackier. Uh, <laughs> it was announced in early 2003 that Marvel would be relaunching the epic line of comics. Bill Jemis's masterpiece, Marvel Number no. 7, eschewed story. Wait, Marvel had a story? Uh, to serve as an as epic job application. So, yeah, Marvel expected wannabes to pay $2.99 to read their submission guidelines. And I bought it. <laughs> and people did. Uh, from Bill Jevis's introduction, to the hundreds of creators who deserve the opportunity to see their work in print, to the hundreds of thousands of readers listening for new voices, Epic Comics is for you. Epic Comics is a new Marvel imprint under which we will publish comics written and illustrated by you. Anybody will have the opportunity to submit work for consideration by Epic's submission editors. And Epic's mission statement is one... Tell great stories and two, reach new readers. 
Wait a minute, shouldn't that be like Marvel or any other company's mission statement? Anyone publishing anything, really, right? you know, it's a, what, 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 what should it be, you know, tell great stories and to annoy the hell out of everyone, you know, like. Uh, that is the mission statement today. That's the that's true. That's the mission statement <laughs> of Mad Magazine, too, for a long time, I think. Anyway, uh, so the bad news is Marvel's current lineup is already filled with all the easy stuff. Marvel makes half a dozen Spider-Man books every month, a dozen X-Men titles, and one or two more for every major character. Let's temper the bad news with good news. Epic will take greater creative chances and business risks than Marvel does. Now, the books Epic is looking for is a Marvel character who already has monthly books, so long as it strikes a clean, crisp note to a clearly identifiable target audience of new potential readers. What? Okay. You just have to get your new potential reader meter and see what happens. And 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 strike a clean, crisp note. Simple. <laughs> now, another book that they're looking, another type of book they're looking for is Marvel characters that have no monthly books. Uh, they call this the best bet for a pitch, uh, so long as you preserve the essence of the classic characters while repositioning and updating them so they resonate to a clearly identifiable target audience of potential new readers. Got to hit that crisp note there, too. Mm-hmm. I, 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 you never see a more complicated way of saying we're desperate, we'll take anything, you know? Like, anything. <laughs> characters that have books, characters that don't have books. Characters that don't have anything. Any like, <laughs> new characters. What the hell does that mean? I don't know. Not just superheroes, though. In classic New Marvel speak, we get the following. Superheroes are great, but there are some readers who prefer the undies on the inside kind of characters. Oh, he's Jemis oh, is the worst why? kind of people. Why? Oh, God. Uh, also, new creator-owned characters outside the Marvel Universe. They do, in fairness, say this is probably your worst bet for a pitch. Uh, they say, and we quote, From Marvel's point of view, these books don't have much value because most of the long-term upside opportunity for ancillary revenues belongs to you, not us. You know, like licensing, for example. Yeah, that's... Nobody's going to buy the uh, the Dingus Man pillowcase, you know? <laughs> yeah, or at least if they do, it won't go to Marvel Marvel's pockets. Yes. Uh, they're also looking for fever dreams from a four-year... No, I made that up. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, now, the rules for submission. Rule number one, if your work isn't clear, don't bring it here. Quote, Jemis. Yes. <laughs> As president of Marvel Publishing, I'm embarrassed to admit that I can't understand many of our monthly books. Wait a minute, wait a minute. The president of Marvel Publishing doesn't understand Marvel Comics. Why? Uh, I hereby resign my position. Uh, He goes on to say that Marvel's main books are completely inaccessible to new Marvel fans. And that's not what he wants for Epic. You know, you can change this. Are you aware that you are the president of Marvel? You can actually affect what they're doing. That's so crazy. Oh, my God. He's like, everything we publish is garbage, so we need new. We need something new and better. Okay, rule number two. Character introductions are the foundation of your story. Quote Jemis, Jemis, great reading scripts make for bad reading comics. What? Is that even yeah, I don't know. And uh, he does go on to ramble for several pages. I couldn't parse it, so uh, he basically says nothing for several pages. I mean, this submission guidelines is a full comic. It's not just one it page. Is. It's a no, no. It's this a is a twenty, page. at least twenty-two pages. Yeah. <laughs> uh, rule number three: Keep your metaphors at your fingertips. Get down to the essence of what made your character popular in the past, so you can write new stories that will make your character popular in the present. 
He writes that during the 1990s Marvel forgot that Spider-Man was supposed to be a teenage boy because he, you know, graduated college and got married and he forgot he was a teenager because he wasn't a teenager. Maybe that's why they forgot. (laughs) So basically, he wants to read about the character that's on the lunchbox. Yeah, we hear that a lot. Uh, Rule number four, start your story at the beginning because writers take for granted that people will understand the Marvel Universe. An understandable complaint from Jemis, but this is also the guy who instituted decompression, writing for the trade, and outlawed thought balloons. Hard to insert catch-up exposition under those conditions. Plus, he wrote Marvel! <laughs> you can't a- How can you ask anyone for clarity when you wrote Marvel? <laughs> with, with, like, what was it, like, three pages of joke explanation? We had, uh, we were so confused. If you don't understand every- who Paul Levitz is, he's the guy who works for AOL Comics. I mean, that, that was the most sensitive. Then at one point, they go into the past, we find out that Manor... Manor evolved from proto-Wolverines? What was going on? Oh, Holy no. God! Jamis. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Rule number five. Think big, act small. He says, little actions are the lifeblood of graphic, sto- graphic storytelling, and it seems like he really just wanted to write about the poignancy of Logan's puppy being killed here. <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> like that, huh? Uh, rule number six, write in arcs. So screw this guy, basically. Screw this yeah. guy. Um, rule number seven, pilots versus origins. And with absolutely no irony, the picture plastered on this page is Peter, <laughs> Peter Parker being bit by the spider. Oh, my God. Uh, rule number eight Take charge, be brave, fight the fanboys And win their hearts Seriously, just screw this guy He's the worst kind of guy um, Rule number nine After nine rules, we're told to break the freaking rules Whoa, Whoa. Throw them in the garbage, Ugh. bro Because they don't mean anything <laughs> And neither did your two ninety nine for this comic Meant nothing <laughs> Oh, now the submission process is uh, your creative team will write, draw, color, and letter the stories. Marvel will not edit your work or bug you about deadlines, which pretty much sounds like contemporary Marvel. Mm. Marvel handles printing and payment. I remember uh, a lot of uh, prolific reviewers and analysts on Usenet being contacted by Marvel directly to write pitches. Wow. So I don't know if it meant that that they weren't getting the amount of submissions they hoped or they were just getting a lot of garbage. But I remember a lot of the guys who wrote reviews every week on Usenet were like, oh, well, Marvel reached out to me. And uh, that was probably my first encounter with Internet humble bragging. None of these actually made it into print, though, and we're gonna Thank we're gonna actually God. cover the we're gonna cover the entire output of uh, Epic 2.0 here in a little bit. Yeah. <clears throat> now guidelines: you're gonna mail full 22-page script to Marvel, along with the res- requisite legal docs. Uh, you know, you'll have your you know I own this, or you'll have a work-for-hire agreement if your story does take place in the Marvel universe. Right. You're gonna I- include a self-addressed stamped envelope in case Marvel decides to accept your pitch at which time they will mail you back a check for $500. From there, you build your creative team. Now, they actually lay out the payment schedule right up front, which is pretty interesting. You don't usually see that kind of information in public, but uh, they were giving you 500 bucks for the acceptance of a script, $1,000 total for the acceptance of a script and for first five pages of art, $8,000 for total or for completed book, 
For sales between $20,000 and $34,999 units was $10,000. $35,000 of $49,999 was $15,000. $50,000 to $74,999 is $20,000. $75,000 to $99,999 is $25,000. $100,000 units or more, you get $30,000. And that's on top of the already mentioned eighty-five to $9,000. I wonder if Marvel's using this uh, payment schedule now because they'd save themselves a ton of money. Are they sure? Uh, <laughs> selling under 20000 that's most of it. Yep. Um, now, the relaunched Epic Comics would release Trouble, the series we just discussed, by unknown talent, talents struggling to break into comics, Mark yeah. Miller and Derry Dodson. I'm sure, uh, I'm, sure they, I'm sure they filled out a full uh, submission. Right? Because yeah. <laughs> these guys are just trying to make, you know, they're just trying to cut their teeth exactly. in the uh, industry here. We've got Gun Theory by Daniel Way, which only published two issues of the planned either four- to six-issue miniseries. We've got Crimson Dynamo, a six-issue miniseries that actually published all six issues. Whoa. And finally... Epic Anthology, a single issue which was basically a depository for all the unprinted epic stories, of which there were three. One featuring Doctor Strange, one featuring Sleepwalker, and one featuring young the Young Ancient One. Uh, I guess there's also Phantom Jack, yes. a creator-owned character created by Michael San Giacomo, who was supposed to get a series via Epic, but the plug was pulled before it would come out, and this was eventually republished via Image Comics. Now, you know, since we do have that payment schedule, let's crunch some numbers here. All right. And at the same time, pretend that Mark Miller and Terry Dodson were paid on this scale. Right. Uh, now, Trouble Number 1 sold 53,727 copies, so 20 grand. Okay. Trouble Number 2 sold 33,609 copies, so we dropped down to the $10,000 tier. Mm-hmm. Trouble Number 3 sold 30,237, which keeps us at that 10,000 tier. Trouble number four did twenty six thousand three hundred sixty three copies. That's another ten grand. And trouble number five sold twenty three thousand six hundred thirty two copies, and that's another ten grand. So all told, sixty thousand dollars between Mark Millar or Mark Miller and Terry Dodson and his wife Rachel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crimson Dynamo number one sold twenty five thousand six hundred five copies. That's ten grand. Number two sold nineteen thousand. 797 copies that got him $8,000. Crimson Dynamo number three sold 15,777 copies. That's $8,000. Crimson Dynamo number four, 12,302 copies, another eight grand. Crimson Dynamo number five, 10,680, another eight grand. Crimson Dynamo number six, 8,700. 92 copies, wow. another eight grand. So Crimson Dynamo, $50,000 for the entire six-issue run. We've got Gun Theory number one, 16,035 copies, $8,000. Gun Theory number two, 11,739 copies, another eight grand. And that totaled $16,000 for those two issues, actually, which might be the best breakdown of all of them so far, quite frankly. Uh, Epic Anthology number one sold 11,247 copies, and this was theoretically $8,000 split a whole bunch of ways with all the people yeah. that contributed to that one. And that's 134,000 units in total for yep, Epic. Total, total for so, Epic Comics version two. Uh, not great. Not great, <laughs> folks. Uh, yeah, that's not where you want to see your sales. And 
That was Epic's less than epic return, but we're not done yet. No, we're gonna meet the new bosses. Woo! Bill and Bill and Joe's marvelous adventure. Yes, that was actually the name of a hardcover Marvel released in July 2002 for $25.99. All right, the, the full title was Marvel 2000-2001 Year in Review, Fanboys and Bad Girls, Bill and Joe's Marvelous Adventure. I mean, you realize that title's not, like, one bit better. In fact, it's... It de- might be it's, worse. It's demonstrably worse. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I, I have admitted to buying every copy of Trouble off the rack. I also bought the Epic job application for <laughs> full price. I swear to you that I did not buy Bill and Joe's Marvelous Adventure. I promise you. We might need, I to, did we might need to look at those bookshelves. I'm telling <laughs> you, you know an awful lot about this stuff, Chris. Uh, anyway, but uh, you... We're going to tell you all everything that we know about him. This is a little background on him. Bill Jemis was born in 1958 in Princeton, New Jersey. Graduated from Rutgers University in 1980, majoring in history with a minor in philosophy and economics. Received his Juris Doctor in 1983 after graduating from Harvard Law School. Became president of trading card giant Fleer in 1993. And became executive vice president of Marvel Entertainment Group that same year. Marvel owned Fleer, which explains why Post and Pell Marvel trading cards came out through this brand, which would be like Marvel Masterpieces and Fleer Flare, which are super pricey. Uh, you know, do you do you have big card collections, Chris? Or uh, I do from from this era. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we talked a little bit about cards. I don't have these kind of cards, but I have other weirdo cards. But uh, rose the, and he rose to prominence during Marvel's bankruptcy years. You might know that time in the nineties. Now, he was a fan of controversial, incendiary, and petulant things, such as the aforementioned bad girls for fanboys, which trouble is kind of... <laughs> yeah, something It's like right that. up that alley. Yep. Uh, he attempted to use uh, Princess Diana's corpse in a, uh, in a, in a arc for uh, ecstatics, which had to be changed uh, upon people being annoyed. Yeah. Uh, she would lambast DC as AOL comics and uh, really just not getting to the point that this wasn't nearly as funny or clever as the It really was not funny at all. It's like, hey, we know who owned you. <laughs> so what? <laughs> I mean, the, the amount he drove this into the ground, folks, and you'd really think it was it was like waiting to be hilarious. Yeah, totally. <laughs> He'd be quoted as saying, "What the f is DC anyway? They'd be, they'd be better off calling it AOL Comics. At least people know what AOL is. We can insert a joke for that too. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they have Batman and Superman, and they don't know what to do with them. It's like being the a porn star with the biggest thing, and you can't get it up." What the f? Yep, and that did not. Nice guy. That did not liken him to Paul Levitt at DC, but we've talked about that. Or a anybody. Bit. Or anybody really. Kind of a crazy thing to say. <laughs> His wife made him sleep in a separate room for that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> we also have, of course, Joe Casada. He was born December first, nineteen sixty-two, in New York City. He majored in illustration at the School of Visual Arts, that's the SVA in Manhattan. Uh, he graduated with a Bachelor's of Fine Arts degree in 1984. He started out as a freelance artist at Valiant Comics in the early 90s, and he would go to D.C. where he'd co-create the new Ray and uh, soon-to-be Batman, Asriel, uh, Jean-Paul Valet, the, uh, you know, the armored Batman. Right. Uh, he's created a publishing company, Event Comics, with pal and partner Jimmy Palmiotti, where they co-created Ash, the firefighting superhero. In 1998, the Event Comics team launched with the Marvel Knights line of comics featuring Kevin Smith's run on Daredevil and the start of the Christopher Priest Black Panther, also the angelic Punisher that everyone knows and loves. 
can't all be winners. No. Yeah, he was promoted to Marvel Editor-in-Chief in 2000 after Bob Harris got the boot. Yeah, and if you want to hear more about Bob Harris getting the boot, it's uh, that was in our Century Weird Comics History right. episode we discussed. No, no, the You Decide. I'm sorry. The You Decide episode. Uh, now we have uh, Jemis. We have Quesada. Let's talk about Quemis, the team. Uh, <laughs> now we are having some fun with them. However, it cannot be understated that the tandem of Joe Quesada and Bill Jemis did a lot to turn Marvel around post-bankruptcy. Uh, despite uh, our, our joking around here, this was a very exciting time to be a fan of Marvel Comics. Um, together, they implemented Marvel's no-overship policy. And in light of today, we can make so many jokes about that. <laughs> uh, now, uh, they added newsstand new compilation magazines to the publishing schedule. So, you know, like the first three issues of Ultimate Spider-Man would be blown up to magazine size, so they would be able to sit on a magazine stand yeah. and not not waste I remember that, Charlie. I remember you see them also Barnes & Noble in the magazine rack, yeah. and I was like, wow, comics Absolutely. are making a comeback, but... Yep. Yeah, they they made they took steps here. Uh, as we just mentioned, they briefly brought back the epic line of comics. They also, as we mentioned, brought the uh, Marvel Ultimate line in. And uh, a lot of people uh, don't remember this, but Bill Jemis actually has co-writer credit on the first several issues of Ultimate Spider-Man. Wow. Uh, also, the two of them had Marvel pull away from the Comics Code Authority. They went all in on trade public. Trade paperback publication, meaning every comic did, obviously yep. gets wrapped up into trades, which is now the way it is for every comic. I don't, I don't think there's one that doesn't do that now. Yeah, I know. Uh, changed lettering from all caps to lowercase type on most books. Which actually, was, actually did make a big change, I think, in the perception. Yeah. Of it. Uh, brought in some great new and lapsed talent. Brought in J. Michael Straczynski to fix Amazing Spider-Man. Graham Morrison took over New X-Men. Mark Wade and Mike Ring- Wiringo on Fantastic Four. Uh, we talked about this before. Jemis would actually eventually try to boot them for Rob, Roberto Aguirre Sacasa. Uh, led to there being two Fantastic Four titles for a little while. This was Fantastic Four and Marvel Knights 4. Bruce Jones. Well, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> oh, they, they, he brought in, uh, they brought in Bruce Jones on The Incredible Hulk. Had a uh, more of like a spy thriller type of feel with uh, John Romita Jr. art for, for the first half of that. It was really good, but uh, kind of overstated. Welcome. Um, as mentioned, Mark Miller on Ultimate Spider-Man. Brian Michael Bendis on Ultimate... Uh, did I say Mark Miller on Ultimate X-Men? But we know it's uh, X-Men, yep. Yes. <laughs> Brian Bendis on Ultimate Spider-Man. Mr. DC himself, Jeff Johns yeah. on The Avengers. Yep. Uh, another Mr. DC, Judd, Judd Winnick on The Exiles. Uh, Greg Rucker was on Wolverine. David Mack took on Daredevil. Neil Gaiman took on 1602. Gail Simone on Deadpool Agent X. Warren Ellix on Counter X titles, X-Force, Generation X, and X-Men. There was an olive branch sent out to Alan Moore. Uh, sadly, this fell through when Marvel fudged the indicia on a trade pick collection of Alan Moore's Captain Britain stories. Uh, Joey Casada said, Let me assure everyone that the mistake on the Captain Britain trade paperback was not an act of callousness, but rather simple human error. What happened with the Captain Britain copyright notice was a mistake and nothing more. And there's very little I can say except I screwed up. When I visited Alan, I made several promises, all of which were kept, but unfortunately, the copyright notice fell through the cracks. I think we've mentioned this before, but they Marvel actually mailed out uh, stickers with the corrected indicia to, to comic again. shops yeah. so they could stick them on the inside the books. Uh, my copy does not have that sticker in it. And that's um, why Alan Moore hates them still. 
Yes. <laughs> now, some other notable items here. Max, they launched the Max line of con- uh, comics. These are the explicit ones for 18+. plus. Uh, now, being mature, they launched with alias number one, and the first word to appear in that book is the F word, mm. which is maturity at its finest, folks. Yeah. Uh, and pretty much why we cannot have nice things. That's the yeah, exactly. <laughs> Now, they made some reveals. Wolverine's origin was told in Origin by Paul Jenkins and Andy Cubitt. Truth, red, white, and black, tells the story of the first Captain America, and it ain't Steve Rogers, because uh, they wouldn't test the superhero, the super soldier serum on a lily white boy. The first Captain America was a black man. Whoa. And uh, the rawhide kid is gay. Very, 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 very gay. Yeah, that might have been a real, that was definitely a misstep on their part. Yes, very uh, much. That, that rawhide kid is offensive to everyone. Yes. Uh, there was the call conceived in the wake of 9-11. The call consisted of an ongoing, in quotes, and three miniseries <laughs> uh, focusing on, on emergency responders in the Marvel Universe. There was... Call of Duty The Brotherhood. This was six issues by Chuck Austin and David Finch. This was focused on firefighters. Call of Duty The Precinct. Five issues. Bruce Jones and Tom Mandrake creators focused on the police. And Call of Duty The Wagon. Uh, This was four issues by Chuck Austin and Danielle Zezelj. How's that sure. uh, Focused on EMTs. The Ongoing by Chuck Austin and Pat Olaf only lasted, lasted four issues. It's also Enough Said Month. <clears throat> now, this is a month in which all Marvel's titles went, quote, silent. This really felt like a throwaway month. It was not a fun month to collect comics. And, um, uh, all, all of the uh, freelance letterers hated it, too, I'm sure. I'm sure they did. <laughs> I'm sure they did. Uh, there was Marvel Tsunami. Now, this was some new titles, and this was a, at its core, this was a, this might have been a failure overall, but it was an earnest failure. Uh, they they were kind of uh, influenced by manga, and, you know, that's where the market was going at the time. Uh, uh, this would include Brian K. Vaughan and Adrian Alfona's Runaways series, which mm. is still, you know, kind of a big deal. Uh, also, there was Sentinel, Mystique, New Mutants, Volume 2, Human Torch, Namor, written by Bill Jemis himself, Whoa. and Venom, Volume 2. I don't, I don't know about the other comics, but Runaways was collected in sort of manga-ish... In digest. ...form, digest form, yep. yeah. Not the exact size, but, you know, definitely getting closer oh, to it. Yeah, a little taller than they, they, about, yeah. They're obviously having a good time playing with the form, because then they came up with Marvel Mangaverse. This was a, an awful fifth-week event turned into a semi-regular series of awful miniseries, including <laughs> a Punisher who was a dom- dominatrix. Yuck, Get it? Yuck, yuck, yuck. Hey, hey, yeah, he punishes. The Punisher punishes. Uh, yes. Also, remove the cover dates from the covers. The rumor was to hide the fact that several books were, books were consistently missing shipping and running, uh, shipping dates and running late. The dates still did appear in the Indicia. We've got You Decide. Bill, Joe, and Peter David squared off for sales supremacy in a contest that, by the time it was over, nobody cared about anymore. Uh, you can check out episode 10 of Weird Comics History in the archives for our long-form discussion on this You Decide stunt. Uh, Jemis would continue to be a controversial sort of pain in the ass, and Casada became viewed as more of the comics guy, not being nearly in your face as Jemis. He also let the creators actually do their jobs without imposing his two cents constantly, like Bill reportedly did. It's believed that Casada saw the writing on the wall and purposely distanced himself from Jemis. 
Now, Marvel executives eventually, while at the same time kind of suddenly, <laughs> got tired of Jemis, uh, both in behavior and for how certain comics that Jemis oversaw were becoming quite difficult to option to Hollywood. Uh, in April 2003, Jemis's position as public face of Marvel ended. Uh, his position was redefined and retitled. Uh, he was still, for now, a, quote, president. However, at this point, Marvel seemed to be handing out presidencies like they were candy. Yeah. Uh, uh, there were, like, three or four presidents at this point. Yeah, I, I think uh, Dan Slott was a president for a week or something. I, I think you and I were co-presidents. <laughs> we were co-presidents for a little while. <laughs> now, in June 2003, Jemis moved out of the Marvel offices. He would remain with the company, at least insofar as having a now non-executive title until mid-2004. Yeah, and now he does some digital own digital type thing, I believe. He just did uh, like take two publishing, but that just right. went out. That just went. That just went down. It's been a rocky road for Mr. Jemis. Uh, sure. But if you have any uh, words for this era in Marvel, Bill Jemis, Joe Casada, or maybe about Mark Millar or the Dodsons, or even about YA preteen novels, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail dot com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic T-mill history on Twitter at cosmic T-mill. And my personal Twitter is at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Our weekly writings are at weirdsciencedccomics.com. And daily writings by Chris are at his personal blog at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, where he reviews a DC comic every single day of the week. Uh, how many How many we got in a row now you strung together? Uh, we uh, today was 589. Five. So in less than two weeks, it'll be 600. We're gonna get to that 600. We know we're all waiting for that 666 when you're gonna do Batman <laughs> Red Rain though, or something like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll figure it. We're already, I'm already uh, pl- planning out the rest of your next couple of years. I yes. <laughs> I can't wait to get to a 1500, Chris. That'll be great. Uh, anyway, you really gotta check it out. It's it's really well done. Uh, careful reviews. You really did that. You recently did the Emerald Twilight. Series, which I thought was good. I was able to read one of them, right? Or did I? Did I imagine the that? final night? Final night. Final uh, night. The, yeah. That's right. The the uh, the what the led, into, what led yeah. into that, right? The, the what the, came out of it. All right, whatever. <laughs> Obviously, I could have read a little closer, but anyway, go check it out. Uh, he's got you know panels, got ads. It's fantastic. Chris is on infiniteearths.com. Check it out. You got to look at it. But uh, I think that's all we got for him this week, Chris. You got anything else for him? What book did we read today? Uh, it was Trouble. You don't remember? Oh, that's the one. <laughs> Big Trouble, right here in River City, with a capital T that rhymes with P that stands for pool. Uh, yeah, uh, that was that was a strange one, Chris. I got to say, it's funny because um, you know I I think of strange books, my mind goes Silver Age, but I got to remember. <laughs> There's every year. There's weird, weird freaking. There's weird stuff that you don't know how got greenlit or whatever. That happened. Wow. So yeah, we'll be plumbing more of that as we go on. But uh, I think that that's uh, all the trouble we can dig up for the people today. I'm gonna tell them to keep it on the treadmill, team tastically. See you.